0: In this crazy world we live in, when people use the word geek, it can create certain impressions. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream. Let's learn about the real people behind the stereotype. I'm your super dummy Paul, this is Geek. Geek.
1: this is Dave Horrocks you probably know me from comics in motion you might also know me from the likes of VHS Strikes back you might know me from Chris and Dave's reality casts or many other podcasts that are out there in the podcast graveyard I like to think of um, the podcasting that I do as kind of a an evolution so I actually like to... Uh, analyze things and also agonize over things generally so probably one of my geek traits and one of the things my kind of partner in crime my podcast brother chris he's more like a um, a bit more impulsive and so i i often joke with chris that while I'm checking all my safety on the on the parachute, I'm checking everything's uh, all in order. Chris has jumped out the plane and I'm busy looking at his parachute. <laughs> so he kind of, he's a good ying to my yang. He kind of, he's wanting to go out there and do things very quickly. And I'm the busy kind of planning everything and probably wouldn't have anything together at all, but... I think that's one one of the reasons. Together as a team, we work quite well because sometimes when there is just a case of we need to go ahead and move forward with the project and just try it and see what happens from there, then you know that's usually Chris's influence. And when there's a bit more planning involved and, and we need to actually you know, let's think about how we approach this, and uh, then that's where I come into it but left to our own devices Chris would probably have about 100 podcasts all of which have you know three or four episodes and and I would still be scratching my head thinking about how I I get my first podcast live so you know that's one of the reasons as a partnership I think we work quite well. I like to think I'm a I'm a good influence on Chris because the movies or TV shows that we'll generally um, review I like to look a few weeks in advance because one of the easy things when reviewing kind of comic-based TV and movies is to just gravitate towards the Marvel and DC stuff, especially in recent years, especially with the Marvel stuff, the way they've been handling themselves. And when we kind of embarked on, you know, setting up comics in motion, what one of the things I wanted to do was to go to some of the properties where people didn't even know that it was based on a comic book. People think of the Supermans, Spidermans, Batmans, they're the kind of properties that you associate with comic books straight away, whereas things like Kingsman, uh, Weird Science in the 80s, those things were based on comic books, and, and I really wanted to push those forward. But if you're just kind of going week to week, you'll probably always gravitate to the spandex. Based comic book stuff, so that's why I, I try and have things planned out a few weeks in advance. So you know, I'll try and space things out with DC and Marvel, and then make sure we're getting some uh, indie stuff in there. So a few weeks ago, we did Time Cop, which was based on uh, a Dark Horse comic, with, which Jean Claude Van Damme starred in. Again, people probably don't even realize a lot of the time that that's based on a comic, um, but part of my ambition or uh, mission statement, really, was to educate people on uh, the fact that comic books weren't just about superheroes. So a few weeks ago, Max and Tony covered a story about Green Lantern and Green Arrow, and... Even though it was about these two spandex-clad superheroes, which you know are quite widely known, and because of the TV shows, a lot of people and, and the movies, a lot of people know who certainly Green Lantern is and, and Green Arrow as well through the Arrow series. Um, and listening to that show, you could tell that there were a lot of um, social issues that were being brought to the forefront through that book. And you can kind of, because you put people in these fantastical, bright-colored outfits, you can actually tackle some real serious issues through the prism of kind of superheroes. And, uh, you know, I I think that's a really, it's something, you know, I'm I'm mid-40s now, but I'm still learning about how much depth actually comic books have. Because I think for a long time they've been considered this kind of low-class art, you know, looked down upon by everyone, looked down upon by artists, looked down upon by certainly screenwriters in Hollywood. You know, if you were a writer of comic books, you were never uh, considered on the same playing field. I I remember seeing a a documentary with Stan Lee. He was with um, Kevin Smith. It was one of those dinner table type things he had uh, JJ Abrams there as well and you've got Stan Lee there one of the, and it's on YouTube if you if you want to go and look at that but and it is a really good watch but Stan Lee you know the the master really of, of popular comics I would say I know there's a lot of debate about you know how much credit other people should get and, and absolutely people should get that credit but you always need a salesman that is one of the dirty little secrets of any business is you need those salesmen as well and better than anyone stanley was that salesman so yeah he probably didn't have the artistic input that he that people think he might have had but he absolutely sold it and you know i, I think it was a really interesting uh, watch in this in this discussion with kevin smith because you could see that Well, he he, Stan Lee was almost embarrassed. You know, he was telling about if he was at parties and things, he'd just say he was a writer. He he wouldn't say that he was a comic book writer. He'd just say he was a writer because he was a bit embarrassed about the comic book side of it. And it's just weird how, you know, unfortunately he's passed on now. But of course, you know, he's revered as this kind of godfather of everything comic book now, isn't it? So his kind of persona has become this godlike figure which again is way beyond reality but you know it's funny how things have turned around in in just a decade or so i don't think anyone actually identifies themselves as a geek when they're younger at least i think when when you approach middle age you don't give a shit about it and you you kind of wear it as a badge of honor but when you're younger no one actually thinks of themselves as that and, you know, certainly I was, I was quite active. I used to love playing football. I was quite sporty um, when I was a little bit older. So my later teen years, to my early 20s, even right up until I was 30, I was, I was in various bands, you know, playing guitar and bass and whatever. So fancied myself as a bit of a rocker for a time. But when I look back, I mean, as a kid, I was always into all the superheroes and stuff. So I think Spider-Man probably sticks out as much as anything as a young kid. And people would buy you comics, as well as the kind of superhero comics. You'd have the, uh, the Dandy and the Beano. But honestly, they never really grabbed me like the American comics did. There was just something about it, these fantastical heroes, right, as opposed to reading about Dennis the Menace. And and actually, it was only later when I got exposed to Viz that, that I started to find those things funny again. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I remember as a young kid, so say let's say six to about ten, I think, being exposed to comics. I actually remember... A particular Justice League comic and I remember seeing Firestorm in there. So you'd kind of been exposed to these other characters like Batman and Superman just through pop culture. There was the, obviously the 60s Adam West Batman that was constantly rerun on UK TV and you also had Superman the movie and Superman 2 as well. So those things would be replayed and replayed. We had those on an old uh, first Betamax, and then we kind of moved across to uh, a VHS. But I think I, I kind of dropped out. It, it seems ridiculous now as I, as I stand there in middle age looking back, but probably about 10-ish, I thought, I've outgrown comics. In fact, I, I say 10, it must have been before that. It must have been about 8 when I thought I'd outgrown comics because I'm sure it was about 86, so i would have been 10 where I discovered a classic X-Men number 1 which was a reprint of giant size X-Men number 1 and on this classic X-Men number 1 I can see it in my mind's eye now that you had um the likes of Wolverine, Colossus, you had Storm, you had Nightcrawler. This was like the international version of the X-Men because before that the original X-Men that Stanley and Jack Kirby had created was uh was it Bill Everett? I can't remember. But they basically created Cyclops. They created Iceman. They created Beast, Jean Grey, and Angel. Four white guys and one lady. Who, you know, is immediately all the guys fancy. And that's there's no diversity whatsoever. But Giant Size X-Men, you know, that was when they added in a bit of diversity. To be fair, you know, you had wolverine who's canadian you know so it's not that diverse but you had a russian you know so in the 60s that was kind of a big deal i know star trek had kind of done that as well with uh with Chekhov. but i just loved the way these characters sort of jumped out of the page and back then as i I read this story and back then you know wolverine kind of became this superhuman uh, this superman level powered being where you know, he could basically regrow himself from a, 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 an amoeba. So so he became less fun in later years. But when I read that first story, I thought it was amazing. And just this team book, you had all these different characters that came to life. And so it wasn't just about one character. It wasn't just about Batman. It wasn't just about Superman. It wasn't just about Spider-Man. It was the way this team interacted and so from there, so from 86, absolutely fell in love with the X-Men. And then so when when the actual cartoon animated series came on in 92, you couldn't, if I'd have made a wish for anything, you know, you, you couldn't have granted me a better wish than that because it was just absolutely made for me. And it's funny when I listen to a lot of comic creators now, a lot of them seem to use that as a... a as a jumping on point, it was like, where did your love of kind of the Marvel universe start from? And a lot of them, you know, look back to that X-Men animated series. But that was, that was me and that was my jumping on point. Now, I probably went for somewhere between three and four years of basically trying to read as much as I could. I didn't have a really good run. There was, I mean, there were no comic book shops back then. Um, this was more like, uh, your local news agents. I'm sure it was a uh, John Menzies, if I remember. And you just had to get whatever they had. So, and I remember getting quite frustrated because you get to a, a conclusion of a story and then they wouldn't have it that week. And you, and you go the next week thinking, well, they must have it this week. And and it's not there then, and so you just it picks up, and you never found out what the <laughs> the conclusion to the story was. But it was always a lot easier to get hold of the Marvel UK stuff as well. So things like uh, Spider Man and Zoids, almost like Transformer dinosaur things. Um, again, just just an excuse. They they wrote these comics purely to kind of. Um, Sell toys. That that was the big thing at the time. But and and actually speaking of which, Transformers as well, of course, was done by Marvel UK. Used to quite like enjoy uh, enjoying reading those as well, which are I think are reprinted by IDW now. But I mean, those were a lot of fun as well. So I, I wouldn't say I kind of followed along with you know only X Men. I was kind of a bit bit more of a tart in terms of comics. I'd, I'd try and pick up whatever whatever I could. And then probably before I kind of dropped off around 14, which which is about the time when young boys start to get interested in other things that aren't comics-based, um, I do remember picking up a few 2000 AD comics as well. So that's where I got exposed to the like to Judge Dread. Rogue Trooper is probably my favourite, even more so than Dredd, um, because it felt like when I was about 14 it felt like that was me growing up again. You know, this was my second uh, time when I thought, you know, I'm kind of growing out of this now. I'm growing out of the whole superheroes thing. And, you know, these uh, these more mature stories are, are kind of where uh, where I should be. And then it wasn't probably until about the mid-2000s, because from 14, you get interested in other stuff you know, girls. When you get to around 17, 18, you're getting introduced to alcohol and going out to pubs and getting a kebab and what have you. And comics just wasn't really high on my agenda. And I started playing guitar when I was about 17 as well. So then you start to get a bit loopy and you start to think, oh, if I just practice for a little bit longer, you know, I'll, I'll go and join I don't know, guns and roses probably at the time and, and, you know, be a massive rock star because I think one of the things eighties movies told, taught us was that you just have to practice for about a week and then you can be anything. <laughs> you can be uh heavyweight champion of the world. If you're on Rocky or um, if you're on no treat, no surrender, you just have to put a bit of practice in and then you can be a Kung Fu champion, all of those things. So, you know, I, Got interested in lots of other individual things. I don't think, while my comics um, interest waned a bit through these times, though, I never stopped being interested in the movies. Now, comic book movies and TV shows are not like they are now. I mean, you, you cannot, or I don't think you can, watch everything that's produced now. You know, you can watch the main movies, but if you want to watch all the TV shows as well, that is a huge undertaking of time. You know, with all of the DC, certainly like the CW shows and all the movies and even Marvel, you had all of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you had uh, the likes of Cloak and Dagger, Runaways, all these other individual shows. But back in the... those kind of times in the 80s and 90s, just never, ever got bored of any of that stuff. And kind of late 89, you had the likes of uh, Tim Burton's Batman, which was absolutely huge at the time. What a brilliant guerrilla marketing kind of approach. You know, all they did, they showed a Batman symbol. That was it. And people went absolutely nuts for it, you know. Um and then I think about '92; they had Batman Returns, which was a, you know, a, a much darker property. And then it went a bit weird with the Schumacher years with Batman. But you did even at that time you did have these other kind of movies, which you know were varying quality. And it wasn't until '98 when Blade came out, when even Marvel had a chance of, of breaking into the movies. Because honestly, before then everything that marvel did pretty much sucked um i mean people do like a bit of howard the duck uh i don't know why cuz it's awful um, what else did they do they did generation x was a thing uh david Hasselhoff's nick fury um i do have a little bit of soft spot though for i, I must admit <laughs> but yeah so so i guess I, I'd always maintain that kind of love of of the comic book properties, but just these fantastical worlds where you know you you change something. You know, it's not like you're going into a Lord of the Rings type world. You you're changing something. You know, maybe someone's got super speed speed, and what can they actually do with that? What can they tell in terms of a story? So, yeah, I've always always had a massive love for that. And I guess in terms of my, as Tony Farina would call it, my origin, having a love of all these things. When I actually went to university, I ended up doing astrophysics. So basically, I, I think I'm a walking, talking cliche of the Big Bang Theory. I, I, I don't know which one I am, but uh, yeah. Again when when that show came out I I must admit I I thought it just became a a little too sitcomy and and a bit too cliché but certainly when it first came out I'm like that's actually me <laughs> <laughs> In terms of outside of um them. i actually think i possibly am a walking talking cliche so like I say i i'd studied astrophysics as a degree um and then i did a master's in it so then i ended up going into an it job um which was basically uh hooking up or interfacing when you walk into laboratories and you have these huge instruments that measure something, these mass spectrometers or gas chromatographs or or whatever. So I used to basically hook up those to databases and and I've kind of stuck around ever since. So rather than just hooking up those instruments, I uh, implement those systems. So... obviously okay so coronavirus is rather topical you might say right now isn't it so if you think about rewind back a year who had tests for that virus well no one because it was a brand new virus and and we had to figure out okay how do you detect it so what i would say is other people, other scientific people do all the hard thinking about, you know, how could we actually do this and and, and detect it and whatever. And I help basically put in, uh, to in layman's terms, a, a computer system to basically track, you know, what's going on with those samples and those results. So if you go to um, take a, a test or what have you, you fill out your details and actually, by the time by the time your sample hits the lab, there the are regulations about how we need to separate out your personal identity, your personally identifiable information, from the actual sample. So you shouldn't be able to get someone in the lab shouldn't get your sample and go, "Oh, look at that, Let's pull that." Oh." and he's positive as well <laughs> you know but lucky for you so you have to basically implement systems so that you can separate out this information so you can separate out that this is paul and this is your sample so the people in the lab never see that that it's actually you and then you have to marry that all up again later in the process without a human being being able to go in and and say okay look well this equals this and again they come to the answer It's Paul again it, it's not it's not rocket science but it's you have to be very very careful and, and make sure you have the right computer systems in there so yeah for for about 20 years now I've I've looked at all things around uh, implementing laboratory computer systems and um that's not only from looking at samples and results and things. If you think about following procedures, um, you have to be very, very careful about if someone updates a procedure, um, you have to make sure that everyone is kind of using the latest procedure and things like that. So you have these document management systems. That's all very um, down at the manufacturing end. So if you're, you're making aspirin, You go to Superdrug or Boots or what have you, and you expect that if you buy an aspirin, it's going to do what it says on the packet. And you just implicitly believe that. Of course it is, because I've just bought it from the shop. Whereas, you know, we need to make sure that these things are actually tested, that they are safe to consume, that they actually do what they say they're going to do. These all have to be tested. So, so I spent quite a lot of time down that end of the supply chain and also to a lesser extent, but I'm getting more comfortable with it, with the whole drug discovery area. So, you know, it's all well and good producing aspirin. So that's something that, you know, we know what it is. We know all the ingredients, we know how to produce it, but what about all the new treatments and what have you? Those are much harder to, to find. Um, so again you traditionally i've kind of possibly unkindly re- just referred to it as the gray-haired scientists you know the really creative uh, doc brown type characters who you know are, are masters in chemistry and biochemistry and, and and what have you and they they come up with this formula and then this you know they're the innovators and then you just have to figure out a way how to manufacture it. And one of the challenges like going through or for for the last few years and I imagine for for a number of years again is how do you systematically build up that knowledge so that you don't have to keep just relying on some uh, very, very creative genius to come through and, and magically come up with something. Because a lot of the best... Uh, kind of treatments that we have a lot of them were were discovered by accident but part of my current quest is well how do you stop it being an accident how do you use the power of computers and artificial intelligence and machine learning to actually learn about well what what things can we what experiments can we run in the computer world that could actually become treatments of the future. So yeah, drug discovery is something that um, is a lot more tricky to do to implement uh, computer systems for, but it's something that, um, yeah, keeps you busy for a day job. First, there was the DC Comics News podcast, then came the spinner Rack, and now... The third show brought to you by...
0: The guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman the animated series. Week by
1: week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the Knight.
0: What hello there i'm seth singleton and i'm here to tell you about mad pup a harley quinn cast Three, two, one. harley quinn harley fucking quinn what have we learned from this crazy show making
1: bat Shark repellent relevant since 1966. oh look goger and we've gone completely off the rails i hear the bat signal Cut up the battle me nods i definitely do not fuck that in need of an adult-sized nemesis
0: humans make good fertilizer.
1: you can't fuck with lois lane for fuck's sake i'm a damn good cop a lot of lasers mm. educational and informative the dc comics news podcast network presents mad love the harley
0: quinn cast <laughs> back to you seth so tell us your thoughts We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Picture this. Someone who knows nothing about comics. Someone who knows comics from movies, TV, and, and video games. a okay. complete ultra-comics nerd. You pick the character you want us to talk about. You send us the questions you want answered. You make the show. A podcast by fans. For fans. Making new fans. Superheroes. Or... Dummies! Part of the Comics in Motion Podcast Network.
1: All work and no play makes for a dull way to live, don't you agree? Join me, Adam Ray, and a very special guest each week on the Hostile Takeover, where they and I discuss their favourite game, PC, console, board game or tabletop, whatever they decide we will talk about. Let gaming be the way forward. Working's too much. It's time for a Hostile takeover. coming soon to a podcast feed near you. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But I'll just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than
1: I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts,
0: Google Play,
1: Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now?
0: Let him go. He did everything you asked.
1: Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. i honestly been been really lucky um, because I actually nev- never wanted to do astrophysics. Um, what I actually wanted to do was sports science. So um, I was always shit at football, quite honestly, but had delusions that I would actually make it as a footballer. And I thought, well, if I couldn't be a footballer, I'd want to be involved in it in some way. So I thought, well, sports science—you know—that seemed like the thing to do. And actually, I, I had no ambition at all to go to university. Not interested. Uh, probably from at least sixteen, I, I attended as as fewer lessons as I could get away with. <laughs> you know, so I'd, it's not like now where the schools snitch on you. So. I just bumbled along, barely scraped through, got a few GCSEs um, and then I thought, right well, I'll do some resets, manage to get some Cs and and carry on a little bit longer, and then hung around for A levels. It was only luckily and I did this through advice from my parents. They said, well, if you take physics, you know you you'll, you'll be able to do whatever you want. I thought, yeah, was fucking shit, really, isn't it? But it's like, right, okay. So I took a pragmatic decision to go ahead and do that. And, again, I had no interest in it. I was the worst student in the world. And I, I think I got an E. You know what I got an E in? General fucking studies, right? Fail physics, fail maths, fail statistics. But I knew a little bit about the world. I got a fucking E. And because of that E, it was the uh, the University of Central Lancashire, which sounds very fucking posh and whatever. You know, it's UCLan. So a little bit like UCLA, but with an N on the end. And it was basically old Preston Polytechnic is what it really fucking was. And so with my, you know, letter that I got where you fail fucking everything, you fucking loser... I had a letter from UCLan as well that said, well, you've got one A-level pass, and E, you fucking loser, is the subtext, but uh, we'd actually like to invite you to do a physics uh, HND. And so in that, even though I had done absolutely nothing And I got exactly the results that I deserved. Because I'd done no work. I barely turned up to any lectures. I had no interest in doing pretty much anything. You know, it was all about going out, mixing with friends, you know, having a few drinks when you could get into the pub, try and chat up girls and whatever. That was my life's ambition at that time. So, So I got exactly what I deserved. But in that moment, I kind of felt, well... If I stick around, I reset my A levels, it is standing still. So there was something inside me that wanted to move forward. And I thought, well, if I move away from home, I get out of this circle of friends that I've got at the time, I know I'm not going anywhere. So I'll kind of I'll make myself a bit uncomfortable, but I know I'll be moving forward. And actually it was it was in the not so much In that first year, because I carried on as as I was before, not turning up to lectures, failing, and then thinking, well, it's all right, isn't it? It was actually at the end of that year where I realized that, well, actually, fuck, if I don't do something right now, like right now, it's not tomorrow, right fucking now, I'm going to be ending up doing, I don't know, something that someone else wants me to do whereas I'd like to make the choice on what I want to do. And it, it was like from about, I would say, 14 to 19, I was just drifting along. You actually wouldn't recognize me from today. It was like someone switched the light bulb on and just immediately went back, did all my resets, and then came back that second year and just worked my ass off because I was so scared that I would just end up, you know, there's nothing wrong with working in a factory or, or a warehouse. But in that summer, I was working in a warehouse and it's fucking hard. And it's fucking hard for not a lot of money. And I just realized I was staring down the barrel of that for the rest of my life. But what I was going to say to you is the... Up until recent years... If you'd have asked me, well, what motivates me to work? I, I've said for a long time, I work to live. I don't live to work. But even within that, there are certain things that motivate you. And it took, I, I went on this course, of, I think it was a management course, and they were talking about the same thing, like what motivates you. And it was, they they had all of these different categories and one of them was salary. And so immediately when they said, well, why do you go to work? It's like, well, let's get paid, pay the mortgage, go on holiday, do nice things. Um, but when they talked about other things, it was like job satisfaction or sense of achievement, you know, actually solving a problem that, you know, you're, you're struggling with. Um, Socializing with with people at work. There, there are lots of different aspects to do the job that you do. You know, not because you can make money doing lots of different things, can't you? You can work at a bar. You can uh, you can be a banker. You can be a solicitor, lawyer. There, there are loads of different jobs out there, but I think a lot of the time people settle on a specific job that motivates them. And for me, what I found out about myself, so my second job, I took on um, like a a real office hours, regular job, which, you know, was more nine to five. It was administering computer systems, so not particularly project work. And what I found is actually proper nine to five stuff just doesn't interest me at all. (laughs) I find it really dull. I get really bored really quick. And I took a, um, I took a like a personality test a few years ago. I, I say a few years ago, probably about ten years now. Um, called a Myers Briggs test, and it, it's a brilliant kind of personality test because unlike your horoscopes, which you can read and make anything fit pretty much. I read this, and I, I came out. You come out with this like four letter acronym, and and it it's like you know ENFP or something like that i think i think that was mine and then you read up about what makes up that personality and one of the first lines when i read up about it was you you like project work or something like that you in work you'll gravitate towards projects and i was like holy fucking shit that is me <laughs> um and it said other things like people around you will be surprised because you'll you'll throw yourself into work, but then you'll very quickly go the opposite as well, and you'll party hard. It, it was something like that, you know. And and running through that personality test taught me a lot about myself, and it I guess it did a couple of things. Everyone likes to think they're unique, and that taught me well. No, there's probably quite a lot of people out there who, who are just like me. I just don't necessarily know them, but you know, I, I think as well it, it it helps you identify the things you are innately good at, but also the things that you're not so good at and that you can work on. And so I f- fully recommend doing those kind of uh, those kind of things. I realise that, like right now with the world as it's been, certainly in the UK the last year. It's very difficult to to just choose the job that you want to do, um, because you know a lot of those jobs haven't been available to do, and and so times have been incredibly tough. I, I've been so so lucky and so blessed that because I work in IT, I, I can work from home. It's not ideal. It's it is better to be face to face a lot of the time, especially if you're dealing with complex issues and and you know big old whiteboard is is usually. You know, for all the techie IT tools, a big old whiteboard is usually my go-to device, to be honest. Um, But you can actually work. And so, yeah, I I realize it's a luxury as well to be able to do that. But I would definitely advise anyone out there to really think about what actually motivates you. Because a lot of us think that it's money. And we, we just want the money to do whatever it is we want to do. But there's lots and lots of different ways to make money. And think about you know what it is that actually... We spend a lot of our time in work. So it's, it's too much time to do something that you don't enjoy.
0: You talk about you can go from really focusing on the project and then completely leave it bringing it back to sort of the geek culture and everything do you think one of the things that maybe keeps you involved in it is escapism you can turn away in batman in space
1: <laughs> you know what i, I you know on steve J. ray will probably disown me but i think i think this is a mid-40s revelation that i'm occurring to the more batman stories i read the more i think you know what i don't think i'm really into batman which is crazy because batman like i say batman 66 the adam west batman and superman were were, were the only things that were on tv i've left out star wars uh, which obviously you know it's kind of comic book you know star wars the comic book actually came out before the movie it was kind of a, a bit of a marketing thing but uh yeah so they they had they they initially wanted to do like just a a mini series so it was like six issues which was an, a new hope or what was originally star wars and then you know became a new hope um but yeah so release date wise it actually came out before the movie but anyway uh so yeah star wars was massive thing for me as a kid but uh, but yeah, so so Batman, yeah. I just I'm struggling a bit with Batman. Um, just yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Don't know. I'm probably just going through a lull, and then uh, next year I'll probably be back on the train. But I think the reason I'm pontificating a little bit is because what one of my favourite graphic novels is an absolutely haunting horrible story and it's called mouse it's by a guy called art spiegelman and this is a um it's a black and white comic so it's it's mouse as in m-a-u-s and basically it's it's told in terms of it's basically a story about what it was like to be a jew in uh, in germany around the, the late 1930s early 1940s and the the Jews are the mice and the Nazis are the uh, the cats and it is it is harrowing <laughs> it is absolutely harrowing because it's told in this kind of it's not quite a cartoon style but I guess that's kind of what it is you know it's 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 mice and cats you know we all know mice and cats Grew up, watched lots of Tom and Jerry. It's just a bit funny, isn't it? But you only have to start reading it. And you you need to stop at times and then think, well, this is what was actually happen, happening, but not to mice, you know, to, to human beings. And I, I like the way these, I mean, they're all just fantasy, aren't they? So whether you're talking about Lord of the Rings or uh, Game of Thrones or you're talking about Spider-Man or Batman or whatever, it's all it's all just fantasy. But it's always... It is escapism, without a doubt. But it's escapism, not necessarily to a good place, but it, it takes you to a place where it makes you think about your place in the world. And so, you know kind of the second world war is something that occupies my mind quite a lot because the the thing that fascinates me about the second world war, first world war was all about imperialism. You know, it was basically Germany and they were still a young country. They, they um, hadn't actually become a unified country until um, not long before that. And they had a, a fantastic Navy that absolutely rivaled the British but they were trying to grow their borders. They were trying to expand their horizons. Exactly the fucking same that the British did. That's all they were doing. They were just trying to copy the British model. That's all the Germans were trying to do in the First World War. Um, and then no one lost, really, that war. But, you know, the the Germans just lost the... Um, the kind of fight they were losing the the politics at home so they they ended up you know they had to to back down and then as history gets wrote they they were blamed for everything then and so they they took a really hard time of it you know the man on the street was made to suffer for the imperialistic ambitions that that their leaders had and then that that kind of births an extremism in people. And one of the reasons the Second World War fascinates me is because how can you take us human beings, we like to think we're quite evolved, aren't we? We're not evolved. We're not any more evolved than when Shakespeare was writing stories. The technology around us has evolved and moved forward, but the way our kind of brains work has not evolved. And I'm interested, how do you take a progressive nation nation like Germany and you create a Nazi culture? That's what for years has fascinated me.
0: Maybe escapism is the wrong word. Maybe it's exploring the human nature in all of extremes, in all the different ways, in a way to understand what the hell is going
1: on in the world. There, there is a bit of that. so, so I, I must admit I find I find a comfort in the Marvel Universe, quite honestly. So like I say I like in fact I'm saying that, right. So I said my, my kind of love of things is the X-Men. You think about what that really is. It's the, uh, the idea that you've got this oppressed minority. Now, whether whether you consider that is something which is a racism thing, maybe it's a misogynistic thing, maybe it's um, transphobic thing, uh, Islamophobic thing. Ultimately, you, I think, honestly, through reading those early stories in the X Men, have shaped my young little mind back then about, well, if you, you remember Civil War, remember the um, almost philosophical debate is, well, if you had superheroes here in the world, wouldn't you want them to be licensed and controlled by the government? You wouldn't want these people with these fantastic powers to, um, you wouldn't want someone who could just blow themselves up to just be walking around the street, they could be, they could be living next door to you, and, and you'd never know. So, wouldn't you want them controlled? I think you would, and and that is that is your immediate response. And that's that's kind of in, in the comics. That's Iron Man's position, and in uh, in the X Men comics, you see a lot of this in terms of um, uh, the the government the way they want to control the mutants and they want to register them and you see all the negative things because on its own that is not a terrible thing. But then you start to think, well, if if everyone's registered, you know, maybe everyone who is in power doesn't have completely virtuous intentions. You know, so <clears throat> if someone has all of that information maybe they can use that for their own agenda so I think is it an escapism or is it educating yourself I think I think it's a bit of both I think it's you know I I could choose more prose kind of novels to to read about the world and and educate myself that way but instead I choose to to read this through the prism of of Captain America and Iron Man so I find it interesting and entertaining to go through um but as well I think for me I, I do kind of agonize about these things afterwards as well And I think well what okay that was the the one and a half two hour entertainment that I got what was it actually saying what what, what were the main messages in that story and sometimes there isn't one <laughs> you know uh some of the crappy b movies that I watch as well there, there, there's no subtext there's no uh, deeper level it, it, what you see is what you get but i do like about a, a lot of the comics and, and i do think a lot of the the writers I, I know on the our discord channel we we were discussing ed bruck baker recently and i talked talked to tony about um uh, an ed bruck baker story called pulp and that was about escaping your um violent history you know and can you if if you've had a violent history can you go on and just forget that completely put that back in your in your past and then go on and create a new life so again i i kind of can read these stories and without becoming a mass murderer or serial killer or whatever i can i can as a thought experiment I can play these things out and I can think, oh, well, how would he feel in that scenario? And could he actually go and do that? So, yeah, it's part entertainment and part trying to educate yourself as well. I do think there is still a stigma about uh, being a comic book reader right now. So I think the bar is less. If you say you're into the MCU movies or something like that. I think that's kind of okay. That's, you know, in fact, in the last 10 years, it's pretty unavoidable, isn't it? All the big budget things, a lot of them have been comic book movies. But to actually admit to being a comic book um, reader, actually, it was one of those things I used to uh, bring up in workshops so, you know, when you brought together in, in a group of people that you don't know and you want to create those icebreakers, so you might say, uh, you know, tell us something about yourself that, that not many people know. Quite often I'd roll out that, that you know, I like to, to read comic books as being my quirky little uh, thing that people probably wouldn't expect from me. And I think I, I put myself back in to what I was talking about before with Stan Lee where he was saying he was a bit embarrassed. And I think, I'll be honest, hand on heart, I would love to say that I go out, chest out, boulders brass, yeah, I read comic books, what the hell of it. I do tell people because it is part of my makeup, but there is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. You know, because, and, and especially when I kind of rediscovered comic books in in the mid-2000s, I, I would tell people and friends and stuff, and it was like, oh Christ, what are you, like, eight years old? <laughs> you know? and, and they're thinking of the, the comic books that, that they would have read. And I think the problem is, when you read a comic book at eight years old, I guarantee you didn't understand it. If you were reading Justice League or you know, Spider-Man or whatever. There were themes and stories in there you did not understand. You thought you did because you looked at the pictures. And it's only going back when you're a bit older and you realize, Christ, there were, these were heavy-hitting issues, you know, and um, stories about identity and you know, figuring out who you are. You know, I, I think about Spider-Man in particular, you know, really having uh, teenage issues just with growing up, with being a bit different, trying to make your way in the world, um, dealing with problems that, that teenagers and early 20s guys have. So so actually, there is a stigma, but it's kind of a little bit unfair because, you know, they I think it's possibly turning around, um, but generally speaking, I think it's still looked down as a kind of lower, um, a lowbrow medium. Now, I think the the thing that might be turning it around is certainly when you have uh, movies coming out or you have series like WandaVision's just come out, is a lot more people are interested then about well, what do the comics say? What, what's going to happen? What are the actual stories that might give us a clue as to what's happening in this, uh, in this TV show? But, um, yeah, I, I do think, I don't know if it will ever change. Um, not, not necessarily in my lifetime. And I think, you know, that's, that's what evolution is, isn't it? I think a lot of your self is kind of shaped in those early years of you as a person. And so growing up in the 80s, you know, the the 80s shaped me. And I try and refine myself, but I've still got a lot of the hard wiring back from those times. And so, yeah, a a little bit um, cautious about who I admit to that I'm a a huge comic book fan. One of the things which is a scar that I bear that, that I still try and... I try and completely wipe away, but it's still there with me. I remember, again, I, I, can't, I can't quite remember what age I was. I wasn't at, at senior school, so I was certainly under 11. So whether I was 8, 10, 9, I, I'm not sure. But I remember being at junior school, and, and we walked to the local library to pick up a book, and I, I picked up Asterix. And I remember the teacher saying, "Aren't you a bit old for comic books?" <laughs> so, I, and I remember just being utterly ashamed by that. I was like, "Yeah, but I like it." <laughs> you know? And and the thing that I'd say is, whether it's whether society deems that whatever hobby or thing that interests you is a geeky hobby, or whether it's something else, like say I like playing guitar. Um, like, binging Netflix series, which probably most of us do after lockdown, even if you didn't start off doing. Um, whatever it is that that you enjoy, I almost think, fuck society. You know, there there are... All right, there are boundaries within that. If you like killing small animals, then you're fucking psycho and, and probably shouldn't, you know, uh, do that too much. But, you know, within reason... If you enjoy doing it, just fucking do it and don't give a shit about what other people think.
0: You can hear more from Dave on his podcasts, Comics in Motion, VHS Strikes Back, Chris and Dave's reality cast, and Back to the Office. You can contact him on Twitter, at Seattle Dojos. Superdummy production for Fantastic Universes. Find out more at fantasticuniverses.com and superdummy.co.uk slash geek. You can contact the show on Twitter at era of geek or by email geek at superdummy.co.uk. You can support the show and Fantastic Universes by joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash fantasticuniverses.